0: Father, as we open your word this morning and we have the opportunity to look into this psalm, um, I ask that you would do a work with your Holy Spirit, examining each one of us as we sit together, as we uh, hear your word, as we um, open it up and, and really kind of unpack things. God, I ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would be working in us to reveal the things. That need to be revealed here, Lord. I also ask that uh, there would be great joy in our hearts this morning over the things that uh, are seen in here. That truly, that there would be um, an opportunity for us to respond with great joy before you for the work that you have done, for what you do on our behalf, Father. Take. Uh, The words that come from my mouth, the things that may kind of fumble around for me here, and and Father, would you use them still in such a way that you would be honored and glorified. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may be seated. As you have already heard, we've been going through uh, uh, the book of Psalms and various passages, and um, I think the uh, last time that I had the opportunity to speak, I had the opportunity to speak from Psalm 127. And it was a joy to be able to um, take a look at that and to see uh, what uh, that psalm of ascent uh, means in in the sense of of, for the people of Israel and then also um, what we find in it. And today, um, I get the opportunity to look at Psalm 32 with you. And uh, it is um, somewhat of a familiar psalm, I think, for many of us. Uh, There are some songs that um, perhaps that you have heard or that you've sung and you kind of look back and you go, oh, those words sound familiar to me there. Uh, you may also uh, just kind of think about the fact that as, as perhaps as you've read through other parts of the Bible, that perhaps there are some verses from here that you kind of think about and, and you go, oh, you know what, part of this is over here or, or maybe it, it ties in with something else. And so um, this is not an unfamiliar psalm, but um, at the same time, we want to uh, just start at the very beginning here. And uh, it is kind of an interesting thing to take a look and see the Psalms here, and uh, we kind of, a couple weeks ago, Rod shared with us that they're, you know, kind of divided up the book of Psalms into five books, and uh, Psalm 32 is part of the first book. Um, There are some markings that are in here um, for us to take a look at first, um, before we actually jump into the first verse, and so... Um, I want to just take a few moments to, to start right there and give you the opportunity just to kind of see. You'll notice that um, at, the, at the top there, it says, um, it has these letters, M-A-S-K-I-L, M-A-S-K-I-L, Um And that was placed just before um, the first verse there. And um, I just want to reference this a little bit for us because this kind of helps tie things in together for us as we take a look at this psalm. Um, a mass skill was thought to be a musical or liturgical term um, that was placed uh, on 13 of the Psalms. And so, as you kind of look around, you might find that there are a few of them that have this. In this case, Psalm 32, this mass skill was written by David, um, and it was given to be used in the worship of God in a corporate sense. And so, when, when the People gathered together. This was a time in which to worship God, and it was written specifically for that purpose. So this is not one of the psalms that was written perhaps just as a, in a private moment, um, but rather this was written for the occasion of worship together. Uh, you'll also notice that in this psalm there are three places where the word Selah was placed. Um, Some have interpreted this term to refer to uh, perhaps musical instructions, and others have thought that it was a word that was placed there to instruct us to pause uh, and to think. Um, And probably it would serve us well to just pause and to think um, at some of these breaks anyway as we kind of take a look at them there. And so without knowing the exact meaning, though, of these uh, Hebrew terms here, Maskel and selah, um, they at least help us to understand this, though that uh, this psalm was written by david it was written to be expressed in corporate worship and it was to impact the lives of those who worship the lord and and that means us okay so that's kind of where we are today Um, it's an important place to um, begin because as we look at this we think okay so david is writing this for all the people to participate in this to hear what is Um, said in this, okay? And so, um, I want us also to um, realize that uh, from this, that uh, this is not reflective of just one particular incident that takes place in David's life, but rather that this is reflective of God and what God is like. And so, when I think about this, I think to myself, Okay, so this is. I'm not looking necessarily just at David's life here. What I am looking at is what God is like. And this is going to help to instruct us then from this passage about really what we need to focus in on here. It helps us also to understand who we are as human beings as we live before the Lord Almighty and the need that we have to be forgiven, just as it says here. And what it means to be credited with righteousness from Christ. Um, So as we move forward from here, um, I would like to make sure that I uh, put up here a a proposition to you or a premise uh, from which to work from this morning, and that is that the steadfast love of the Lord brings protective discipline, confession, and direction so that we can gladly proclaim Him as the Savior once again the steadfast love of the lord and here's a term that we have seen on several occasions now before we can jump into the first set of verses completely we need to closely look at the title of the psalm the psalm is titled blessed are the forgiven referring not to one person but to all who are forgiven it's not singular but it's plural and it means that this was not just for david but rather that uh, this is for all of us to look at. Another important element to look at is is looking at the word blessed here. Blessed is sort of a curious word in the English language. It it seems to hold many different meanings for people. In fact, uh, both the unbelieving and the believing use the word quite frequently. And unfortunately, that has sort of diminished the biblical understanding that we have for the word blessed. Uh, Take for instance, in the sports world, um, and uh, I don't know if you watch the NBA championships, but, you know, as I was watching uh, some of the games and the interviews that happened afterwards, uh, one of the things that, was, uh, that came out was that players say things like, you know, I'm just really blessed to be able to play this game. Um, another one would say, you know, I'm just blessed to be part of this run, of this championship run. And, and you know, you kind of listen to what they're saying, and, and you could interchange another word with that, right? Some of them actually do this, and they'll say, I'm just really lucky to be able to do this. And so they've sort of used the word blessed, and, and you know, we kind of think like, well, maybe, are they kind of trying to say that they're Christians because they use the word blessed? Well, probably not. Um, it's just that that's kind of the word that is sort of the word to use, there may be some part of them that kind of feels like perhaps, you know, uh, uh, yeah, there's someone out there that, who's probably put me in this position, but their knee may not have been bent to the Savior yet. Um, not only uh, might we look at that, but also maybe another example is that sometimes you hear people that will talk about their children and they'll say things like this, oh man, we are so blessed because of the children that we have. And, of course, what that means is they are receiving happiness from their children at that moment. Both believing and unbelieving can use this word, right? Of course, the unbelieving and even the believing sometimes, if their children are not bringing them happiness, might not use that word, right? And they'll just say, well, you know, the current state of things leaves me kind of miserable right now, right? And No longer do they have this happiness or this blessed uh, feeling. Well one more example just for us to kind of think about and uh, perhaps this has happened to you but um, I know that it's happened to me before and I was reminded of this yesterday that um, I had to place at one time a phone call uh, to get support help for something and of course it took me to Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, at the end of the conversation, I was reminded yesterday about this, that uh, you often can hear phrases like this, have a blessed day, at the end of the conversation. Is that right, Keith? Uh, your hometown over there, right? And so um, you kind of wonder to yourself, like, all right, so what were they saying to me right there? You know, well, actually, for a Southerner, that's, a, that's quite a common phrase to use, isn't it? Or God bless you. Or God bless you. Does that mean that they're believing? Maybe not. Okay, And so as we take a look at this, I want us to just kind of think here for a moment that in Scripture, when we see the word blessed throughout the Old and New Testaments, in the Hebrew, the word blessed is commonly understood to mean happiness or even true happiness. And even though this would be a direct English translation, the proper way to understand it must include the divine nature of God while in a settled state not based on temporary circumstances in the moment. So today what I've chosen to do is to use the words true happiness in our outline. Um, And mostly to catch our attention so that that we don't just glaze over the word blessed and lose the point the psalmist is making regarding the settled state that we can live in. In fact, um, I'll just kind of um, remind you of this, that um, when we get to the end of this psalm, you will definitely look back and you'll say now i do feel blessed okay so as we're using this phrase though true happiness is just to try to keep our minds focused here on what we are looking at And at the end i can tell you this that you will find that blessed is the best word that you can use well uh true happiness is found in complete forgiveness is our first section here. And, and, and the first five verses are full of rich theology that gives us the gospel. So as we unpack these verses, let your heart settle on the fact that God has created us to live with a certain tension. And this tension tends to kind of pull us and push us, and, and it makes us feel unsettled. Um, one of the things that it does is that um, it helps us to see that even though we are loved by God, as believers, we are still prone to sin. And sometimes that that tension seems to be a a juxtaposition in Scripture. Uh, It compares, for instance, the blessed man to the wicked and scornful man. Uh, We see this juxtaposition in the book of Psalms and Proverbs, and really in many other places in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, uh, where we see these two elements that or words that are placed side by side and, and they're compared to show irony, to show perhaps even the foolishness of the way in which someone does act or think. So if we take a look at uh, Psalm chapter one, verses one and two, and I invite you, uh, you know, if you want to just turn there, and it says in that passage, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So these first two verses compare the man who has a true happiness in the counsel of God with one who scoffs at God. And as you read through the entire chapter, the comparison continues until it describes the condemnation of the wicked at the judgment and. The prosperity of the man who is righteous. And so, throughout this psalm, we're kind of seeing this comparison that takes place, but it goes all the way to the end to show what happens. So, in Psalm 32, the passage begins with a similar tone. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We see that there are two states that a person could possibly be in right from the get-go. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, sort of strikes me here about this is that, um, you know, for us, in this, in this uh, opening phrase here, it starts with being blessed, but at the same time, it talks about the state of being a sinner, and here are two things that have to be reconciled here. And that's really what happens here. You remember perhaps a month ago that Pastor Rod was preaching from Mark chapter two and we came across the words of Jesus as he was speaking right after he had called Matthew to be his disciple. And the scribes and the Pharisees were nearby as he was reclining at Matthew's place and all the sinners are there, right? There's Jesus, and there are all the sinners. And the scribes of the Pharisees are mentioned. And they're thinking certain thoughts. And Jesus turns to them, and he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a tension that exists, and it is that we are blessed. As we look at Psalm 32, we are blessed. And we can have true happiness, but we are sinners, aren't we? And sometimes that's a a challenge for us in our lives. Um, It is commonly known that Augustine um, spent much of his time meditating on this particular psalm, Psalm 32. Um, And um, as he read through it, he he wanted to think about this as he was getting closer to the end of his days, that he had something inscribed on his wall just above his bed there. And what he had inscribed there was this, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. And he just meditated on it. He thought about it. He was thinking, you know, wait a second here. This is who I am. This is the tension that we live in. If Augustine searched out this truth, we should also become very aware of our sinful tendencies too. So in order to do this, we need to ask the question as we kind of move through this here, what is sin? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. What is sin? The passage uses four words to describe sin. The first is transgression, which means to deliberately oppose the law of God. It is defiance against the lawful authority of God. We call it rebellion or revolting. It's much like a child who refuses to obey and instead challenges parental authority. Those of you who have been parents, you know what I'm talking about. And those, everyone in here has been a kid, so you all know exactly what that means. Transgression. The second word used is sin, which means to miss the mark. It indicates a failure to live up to God's standard. It's the same as what we see in Romans 3.23 when it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It indicates that something is missing in one's life or to have a defect. Something is wrong. A defect. The third word that is used here is iniquity, which denotes perverseness. It comes from a Hebrew root word, that means bent or crooked it means that our human nature is warped it's bent and twisted instead of being straight perfect and true the fourth word that is listed here is deceit which of course means to be insincere to be duplicitous to guile it's through these four words transgression sin iniquity and deceit, that David covers every aspect of sin. And at the same time, he tells how God took it all away from him. That's the amazing part of this. You know, over the last several years, we went through the books of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, and um, I remember that we got to the end of 1 Samuel, and we were clamoring in here, Pastor Rod, take us through 2 Samuel. And um, so we went into 2 Samuel, and boy, did we get a different view of David, didn't we, as we went into it? Completely different. We were able to see the sins of David's life. And they were there for us in Scripture. Um, seemingly, um, as we see the sins of his life, it seemed like there was no honor left in him. As we studied and we looked at the destructive path of David's life, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he planned the murder of her husband, who was a friend and faithful uh, man to David and one of his soldiers. And for the better part of an entire year, David lived a heinous life that included lust, deception, and murder. And, uh, And since there was no way of getting out of this, he basically decided to continue with his own plans by using more deceit and adding to his transgressions and iniquity to his account before God. But the good news is this, that God did not discard him. God did not discard him. Instead, what we see is that God sent Nathan to David to, to basically to lead him to repentance and, and to point out to David, God knows what you have done. You know, for that year that David was, was living recklessly like that, we're going to take a look and see what that did to him. But God, and, God covered the sins of David God imputed righteousness to David over his iniquities. and David had to be sincere and without deceit before God as he did this. 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 13 tells us this, that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Direct statement. It's against God. I realize what I have done, he says, and this is against God. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24, we have another chronicled incident in David's life where he sinned against God, and when he had to choose a punishment, he chose to fall into the hand of the Lord. This is a uh, after this previous incident, and in David's words as to why he chose the hand of the Lord over having to be pursued by his enemies, he simply said it was because his mercy is great. The Lord's mercy is great. David is actually taking some comfort in this. He's thinking, you know what, I I tried the other way. I tried dealing with people and, and trying to Figure those things out, and all it did was kind of lead me down into more sin. But instead, this time, he says, the Lord is merciful. Well, in fact, as the chapter proceeds, David confesses his sins, and he says, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. And he says, But these sheep, what have they done? And he pleads to God, and he says, Please let your hand... Against me and against my father's house. And David, once again, confessing his sins and asking for God to be merciful. And after that, David is instructed then to build an altar on Aruna's land. And King David, without deceit and sincerity, pays the man a fair price for the land and for the oxen, even though Aruna wanted to give it to him at no cost because he is the king. But the chapter ends with these words. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from the land. I I can't even begin to imagine how David must have felt to see what was happening, this plague that was killing people over the land. And David, seeing the wreckage that is there from this, he he, he just calls out to God, knowing that what he has done was sinful against God, but knowing that God is merciful. And so the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from the land. I thought about that, and I thought, you know, is that the thought of like oh great relief or is it really the thought of I'm blessed by God well I do believe that uh, this was a time in which he felt that there was some true happiness knowing that God would forgive him and and I want us to think about this brothers and sisters are we not also blessed uh, and truly happy that God is willing to pardon us. He's willing to overlook our sins and impute us with Christ's righteousness for his name's sake. If we will confess our sins with sincerity, won't he? You know, this was uh, David's opening statement that erupts from his soul before God in corporate worship. And, and he cries out and he says, you know blessed blessed is what we are here Um, we're going to take a look at the effects of sin right now and um, in verses three and four david shares his testimony of what happened to him when he did not confess his sin to god And David literally lists the effects of sin on his life. And as we look at what David says, what happened to him, I'm going to encourage you to take inventory of yourself to see if this is what is happening to you today. In fact, uh, sometimes we may even find ourselves wondering, why am I going through certain things right now? Um, David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. David says that when he kept silent and did not confess his sin to God, he literally began to feel ill. This is a man that had been healthy. He had lived outdoors most of his life. Um. (laughs) He just seemed to be a guy who was just like one thing after the other. No problem. But in this case here, he began to feel the repercussions of his unconfessed sin by God's hand being heavy upon him. He not only became ill physically, but he also lost the ability to rally himself to do anything that was joyous. He admits that he was listless, that he was unhappy, and he was wretched while he was in the sinful state and not willing to confess. Friends, it's always easy that way. When when we have something on our conscience that we know needs to be confessed to God, Um, it's, well, let me kind of back up for a moment. It is always that way when we have something on our conscience that we know needs to be confessed to God, that we end up feeling the pain that comes with it. Now, I want you to think for a moment that uh, there are times where we have problems in our own relationships, right, with people. Sin. Um, and there's this not that we get. And there's this uneasy feeling. And at times, it's even Painful. It's it's what we feel when we are being rude and when we mistreat our spouse. Maybe it's our parents. Maybe it's our children or anybody else that we will eventually have to reconcile with. And that feeling of like, you know, I just don't feel right. In fact, oftentimes people feel like they want to just, what, leave get away. They don't want to be there. They want to avoid completely. Um, the longer we allow sin to go unconfessed, the longer our misery grows. And in many circumstances, our unconfessed sin also brings pain upon others. And that's something that we often overlook, because uh, for most of us, we think that when, when we sin, that our sin just affects us, and that's it, and we fail to see that our sin actually brings misery on others. David's sins cost others greatly, just like when a spouse chooses to be secretive about a sin and allows it to sit unconfessed. You know it's hurting your relationship with your spouse, and perhaps your children, and certainly with the people in your church. Those hidden sins that we don't want to deal with hurt others as well. Children who, who um, have decided to live in rebellion against their parents, against their parents' instructions for them. Oftentimes, um, you know, it, it's like they're not going to confess and so what they do is they will find other people to, that will listen to them. And maybe it's in their own home. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's wherever. But they go and they look for somebody else, and they take their misery with them. And they put it on somebody else. And this is what sin does. It begins to just tear at our fabric, and it begins to take away our energy, our strength. Now we've all been there and and David is showing us that even here though, God has not forsaken us. He instead, God is long-suffering, he's merciful to keep pressing in on us until we confess. It tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord reaches us When we have not confessed and repented yet, because He is faithful, even when we are not faithful. I hope that you see this as really the opportunity to rejoice in the knowledge that we can avoid pain and misery. We don't have to go through this. And that's what this psalm is, is really leaning towards, to, to get us to understand that this is not the place that we have to be. Verse 5 tells us how David eventually went before God in confession, and the immediate effect of doing so. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and i did not cover my iniquity i said i will confess my transgression to the lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin selah david declares that he acknowledged his sin to god and that he was done trying to cover up for his own deficits in his account he goes before the lord alone And he told the Lord that he had been in rebellion against the Lord and his laws. And to his wonder, David declares, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is always God's action toward us as believers. But remember that this forgiveness doesn't come without a price to be paid. In David's day, It required the life of a goat the sins were placed on it Um, eventually it cost the father his only beloved son who bore all of our sins all our iniquities transgressions sins and deceit were placed on christ jesus and when the Father looks upon us, he sees the righteous of Christ, the righteousness of Christ that covers our sins. And folks, that ought to bring a hallelujah from us, that that's what he sees. Are we not blessed beyond measure and not just here on earth, but we will be blessed into eternity as well. This is, this is what David was trying to convey that God is faithful to do this. The second part of this chapter, as we kind of move into uh, the next section here, it's uh, about true happiness that should be found among God's people. And it says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. This is David's hallelujah chorus. And from his own personal testimony, David shares wisdom to the saints. He calls the godly to offer prayers of confession to God today, not later, but today. He urges those who fear God to confess while you are right there next to God. Don't wait until you have gone into a complete downward spiral and you are in the rushing waters. Sincere confession means that you place yourself in his care, not in your own. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is just to give our sins to God, isn't it? We love to hold on to our sins and we think that we can straighten things out We think that, in fact, after a while, that these are no longer sins. We call them problems. That's what we do. Friends, here's what God does. He becomes our hiding place. Protecting us. Preserving us from trouble. By providing peace. And he surrounds us or he hems us in on every side so that we don't have to fight our own battles. He fights the battles for us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 tells us Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. In other words, don't let sin derail you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who delights in every respect, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, this is what's available to us. And yet so often we despise the goodness of the Lord and we believe that we must wallow in our sin and that we are unable to rejoice then over the fact that Jesus has conquered sin and that his righteousness has been credited to us. In fact, sometimes uh, it really is kind of disappointing, but... um, It's not uncommon for us to find people who say that they are following God and they are Christians. And when the problems come up, which is sin, what they want to look for is for, oh, what's uh, the number one bestseller on how to help yourself with these problems? Self-help books. And they don't want to turn to the Word of God. And yet, here we are being given the opportunity to be able to turn to our great high priest. And we get to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The last section of this chapter shows us that true happiness is found in trusting the Lord. The section begins with words that are very direct and personal here. It seems that God has now sort of picked up the pen and and is beginning to write something for us, but more likely this is probably a reference to what David promised in Psalm chapter 51, where David cries out to God for mercy over his sins in the situation with Bathsheba and Uriah, and after crying out to God for restoration, he says in verses 12 and 13, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and my tongue Will sing aloud of your righteousness. It seems that, that David is, is making good on this promise that he had made by writing this psalm and putting this together here. And certainly, all of these are the words of God to us. But the language here is much like we see in the opening chapters of Proverbs that declare. For one, to hear the instruction that is being given. Verse 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. David is pointing us to look to God for our instruction and direction in life. As I said just a moment ago, it's really quite perplexing to think how Christians are so easily drawn to worldly or secular sources for wisdom when they're dealing with life and the issues that arise can I encourage you today? The greatest criticism that you can take from anyone is to be criticized for holding fast to a biblical view of things. Just imagine being criticized because it's the Bible that you hold to. Be encouraged if that takes place. It will not surprise you that even at times, even those closest to you may sometimes find that to be too much. It happens. Even in our own homes, we may find that. Within our own families, amongst our closest friends. You do not have to be ashamed that God has promised to keep an eye out for you and to lead you with good counsel. Whether you're young or old. As we uh, turn to verse 9 here, verse 9 is is sort of uh, an interesting uh, verse here because um, as we take a look at this, um, there is really here this word picture that is given to us, and, and it's also an imperative that is given to us. And it says, Don't be like a horse or a mule. Bet you didn't really think that that would be something you'd find in the Bible, right? Uh, But don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. You know, as fallen beings, we we seem to be bent on self-destruction, unfortunately, right? That's our nature, it seems like. David inserts this as one of his final pleas to remind us that when we refuse to seek forgiveness, We need to have God be a little more forceful with us. Once again, when we refuse, sometimes God has to be a little more forceful. Of course, we all think of a mule as stubborn, but David uses the phrase, without understanding. This is for us to remember that when we choose to remain in unconfessed sin, we show our ignorance toward his loving kindness. That's what we're doing. Furthermore, when when God has uh, led us by bit and bridle, it shows us that we're not willing to humble ourselves before God. And all of us in this room know that that pride is so crippling. In fact, as I think about it, I, I think to myself, as it says there in the verse, don't be like the mule, because many are the sorrows of the wicked. A lack of humility will bring a lot of sorrow, and it changes. Changes things. But a steadfast, it says here. Steadfast love is what we're gonna take a look at next here. Um. You probably recall that we've used um, the phrase Hesed, that's the Hebrew term for steadfast love. It says, But the steadfast love, or steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And here is our blessedness and true happiness. It is in the God that is always faithful, full of goodness and kindness and his love toward us. The comparison of the wicked and his reward is sorrow, but the reward For the godly is to receive said, steadfast love from the Lord. And this leads us to that uh, final verse, the challenge um, that is there for us. And, And really, the only thing that we can do as a result of this picture, really, of the gospel that has come out is to learn to delight in the Lord. And when I look back over this psalm, I see that it is our unconfessed sin that separates us from God. But God has done all the work to forgive us already. And that's, that's the beauty of this psalm. He sent his son to take on our sins upon himself and, and we were credited with Christ's righteousness. And now the father calls us sons and daughters and he treats us like that. He never limits his love for us, and he always is ready to help us through the most adverse times in life so that we might have even more reason to trust in him and bring glory to his name. So what is true happiness or to be blessed? I told you we'd come back to this. It is the goodness and abundance experienced when God rewards you for walking in his ways. It includes his forgiveness, and salvation, his protection and victory, his presence and prosperity by his hand. It is attained by seeking the Lord and walking in his ways and comes through his discipline and correction, and it results in praise. No wonder the last verse says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy you upright. What glorious words for us to keep in mind. I want to just kind of bring things to a close and and give you some concluding thoughts here to think about. And the first one here is don't be a stubborn mule. Don't be a stubborn mule. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. In just a few minutes we're going to be approaching the table to take communion with the Lord as a body. And and friends, I don't want us to take lightly what we will be doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 30 warns us that we need to make sure we don't take communion in an unworthy manner. Listen to the words that come from this passage. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And so I just want to remind us that, you know, the Holy Spirit is doing a work to reveal to us when there is sin there. Don't ignore it. Don't be the stubborn mule. Secondly, you can't get beyond his reach. Your life is hidden with Christ because it was purchased at such a great cost. This is the gospel and we need to preach it to ourselves. And, and remember the great lengths that Christ Jesus went to for his heavenly father. As it says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The most valuable things that we have, we often are making sure that we take care of them, right? Well, believe me, we are valuable to him because his son is valuable to him. And third, maybe something that's a little bit different for us to think about, but how do you rejoice in the steadfast love of the Lord that surrounds your life every day? How do you do that? I'd like to challenge you to make it a point to do this daily with God. Make it a point to do this daily with God rejoice in his steadfast love that surrounds your life every day. In fact, I would challenge you to even maybe take your journal that you have and write on there Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then to record how you are rejoicing in the steadfast love of the Lord that surrounds your life every day. Bow your heads, let's pray. Father, we have much because Christ gave much. And to know that uh, we live in the tension of this world where although we are forgiven, oftentimes we still tend to go back to sinful ways And we need to confess those sins before you. And Father, when we don't do that, we put ourselves in places where we don't want to be. And for some reason, within our own pride, our own sin, our own transgressions and iniquities, you still love us. As your children, you you do everything you can to press in on us and to restore us. And Father, this morning... As we've looked at these things, I pray that you would help us to recognize that because of your faithfulness, we can rejoice. We can be glad. We are blessed. We have a true happiness. And Father, may we not just keep that to ourselves, but may we make that known unto others. We thank you for the richness of your word We thank you that, above all, that you do not change, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen.